Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio. It's a wonderful day to travel and leave positive footprints. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're going to take you to some very interesting places where nobody else really does. If you're joining us for the first time, thank you and welcome to our world of socially conscious and responsible travel. Babe, I think we have a very interesting show lined up today. Indeed we do. Today's World Footprints explores the world of silence, how a man and a fragrance can change the world, and a place where freedom remains a struggle. First, after witnessing the devastating effects of a 1971 oil spill in San Francisco Bay, John Francis embarked on a period of reflection that stretched into 17 years of self-imposed silence and 22 years of walking. We'll introduce you to John and his incredible story, chronicled in National Geographic's The Ragged Edge of Silence, Finding Peace in a Noisy World. Then it's the extraordinary story of how a man named Gear Ness and how a fragrance company named after his mother Lila is changing the world. Gear's passion and determination have made him an entrepreneurial success who hasn't lost sight of his commitment to make a difference in others' lives and will share his story. Finally, World Footprints welcomes back Cynthia Dial, author of How to Get Your Travel Writing Published. She recently traveled to Burma, also known as Myanmar, and she stops by to share what she experienced in this country struggling for democracy. We welcome your comments at any time about anything we're doing. Email us at comments at worldfootprints.com. And, of course, please connect with us, which you can do from our website at worldfootprints.com. You can sign up and follow us in real time on our social networks like Facebook and Twitter, and also sign up for our newsletter, again, at worldfootprints.com. After witnessing the devastating effects of a 1971 oil spill in San Francisco Bay, John Francis embarked on a period of reflection that stretched into 17 years of self-imposed silence and 22 years of walking. Through this extraordinary odyssey, he mastered and learned to harness the incredible power of silence. His story is detailed in National Geographic's The Ragged Edge of Silence, Finding Peace in a Noisy World. John, what possessed you to stop speaking and just listen? Well, um, I guess I, I just got tired of arguing, and uh, I was arguing about whether one person could make a difference because I had seen an oil spill and had given up riding and driving in motorized vehicles. And so on my birthday, I decided I wasn't going to speak for one day, but um, I only thought it was going to be for one day. Oh, my. One day turned into uh, 17 years. Exactly. When you first imposed this vow of silence, I mean, how, how did you go? You said that you expected it to last for one day. How did it end up lasting for 17 years? Well, um, it, you know, it's like one step at a time. I hadn't expected it to be 17 years. I thought it was going to be a birthday gift to my community, uh, who were very appreciative of me not speaking for one day because I spoke so much all the time uh, that the one day uh, I realized uh, as I was not speaking that I hadn't been listening to the people around me. I would just listen 
just enough to think I knew what they were going to say, and then I would stop listening, and I might agree with them, or I usually would disagree with them, or figure I could say it better than they could, uh, and then not listening um, before they finished always stopped communication, and so I realized that during the first uh, day that I didn't speak, uh, and so I decided maybe I should um, listen for another day because it, it, I was starting to learn something, and it went like that. I learned different things as I as I maintained this silence until finally I said, well, I'm going to be silent for a year, and uh, I'll revisit that on my birthday again and see if I'll start speaking, and it just lasted, you know, 17 years, 17 birthdays passed. Well, how were you able to, you know, you said you, you learned some, you picked up some techniques and, and, and really learned how to navigate the world in silence, but how did that impact your life, your relationships with others, um, your, your work? Well, um, <laughs> it was a, a, a very severe impact with my uh, family, for example, who were in Philadelphia while I was in California is where I started not speaking. Uh, first, I gave up riding in cars, and they said, well, how are you going to come visit us? And I said, well, I, I'll, you know, I'll have to walk. And uh, when I stopped talking and wrote my mother uh, and said, I'm not speaking, so I can't call you on the phone, my mother just said, your dad's going to be out on the next plane. She she wrote back, and my father came out, saw me, and he said, well, dear, we should just leave him out here because this wouldn't work back in Philadelphia. But um, <laughs> they, they locked me up, which was a good thing. Uh, they didn't lock me up, and uh, I just every day um, learned to, to navigate. Well, people like to be listened to. I think it's a very important skill that sometimes we forget that even though someone's speaking, that if there's someone that's not listening to them, if they're not being listened to, it, there's no communication. And so I was learning this very important lesson about communication, that we have to listen to each other. Um, but I was going to take all this time in order to do it, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we, we talk about travel here uh, as being very transformative, and um, we define that very broadly. Life is a journey and, and very transformative, and I'm just curious what you learned about yourself during this time of silence and how transformative that was for you. Well, um, and and in, in the book, uh, Ragged Edge of Silence, it, it talks about the journey of, uh, of life. And, um, and this, I guess the, it's the, the inner journey. You have an inner journey and you have an outer journey. And that the geography of, of each journey is, um, is a little different, but, they, but they, they fit together. And my outer journey, I believe, and my inner journey um, actually co complemented one another. Uh, and as I walked across, I did walk across the United States, uh, and I listened to a lot of people, uh, a lot of people um, who I might not have heard had I driven or flown across. I'm sure I wouldn't have heard them. But um, that was my education. That was my informal education. But as I walked, um, I did stop and I worked. I, I built wooden boats. Uh, I um, worked as a printer. I went to school as well and studied uh, undergraduate, getting my undergraduate degree 
in silence and and then going to uh, Montana from Oregon to get my master's degree and actually teaching um, in silence um, while I was getting my master's in environmental studies and uh, that teaching in silence where the students were actually um, speaking more than I would speak because I didn't speak at all but uh, was very transformative because I learned about learning uh, that we learn from each other and you can be a teacher but if you're a really good teacher you're you're probably learning just as much from your students as you may be teaching and I went on walking across the US to get my my PhD in Madison Wisconsin and then to the East Coast where I began speaking in Washington DC on the 20th anniversary of Earth Day because I felt I had a message that, that, that I had learned along the way. You discovered, uh, as you were walking, as you are traveling, you discovered some very interesting practices um, from other cultures regarding silence. What, what are those things that you discovered? Well, um, there, of course, in, in all the major religions, silence or the rule of silence is um, something that's, uh, that's used in order to get to a place of some, uh, you know, an exalted place a, or a find a place where you can commune with um, the Great Spirit in the tradition of uh, the Native American people, they have uh, um, that tradition to commune with, with nature, and nature being the Great Spirit or part of the Great Spirit, uh, a manifestation of the Great Spirit. and so. Being silent and listening, um, listening, I, I think, is the key to understanding of ourselves and of uh, that which is around us, which is unknown to us or, or, or kind of held away from us. But if we listen intently and we get to this place where we're, we are listening and in silence, um, those things become known to us, and they're kind of uh, ineffable. You, you, you can hardly explain them. You can only point in the direction of what it is. I know that you, through that those 17 years, um, discovered some, some things, you know, practical exercises uh, that people can embrace uh, to uh, perfect the art of silence in their own lives. What, what are some of those uh, practical exercises? Well, um, in in the book, um, Ragged Edge of Silence, there are, there are exercises right after each chapter, and they start off very simply by maybe sitting in a quiet place, like finding a place in a park or some place that is quiet in your in your home, and 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 just being quiet for five minutes, well, maybe two minutes, and it sounds like well, this is that's very easy to do, but when someone hasn't been doing this kind of practice, a minute or two minutes seems like a really long time. Um, well, the book will take you through this ex- through this kind of uh, uh, awakening until finally we get to places where the exercise is um, to, as you're walking along, to remember a place where you had that silent experience and take that moment to bring yourself into that place, into that silence that you had the experience in, in a, in a quiet place. Um, and so the, the, the exercises in the book 
tend to, to help you take it with you as you're, as you're traveling through your, your day. We get finally to a place where we're listening to each other, and we do an exercise, and I um, had a, a, a very dear colleague help me with this exercise, where we are listening to each other about the things that we might disagree with, but listening fully in order to understand and, and, and appreciate the person who's speaking. There's an exercise where someone is told not to listen, and another person is told to say what it is that's important to them. And after the, the time is up, they say, well, how did you feel? And they say, well, I felt, I felt terrible because this person wasn't listening to me. And then we reverse that and say, okay, now we're going to listen to that person. And they ask after the exercise, well, how do you feel? I felt, oh, so valued, and, and the time just flew by, although it was the same amount of time. And so when we have this experience, we say to, to, the, to the two students and the two people who are doing the exercise, and if you're a reader, if you understand that listening to someone can make them feel good, forget the other part where you don't listen. Just go right to the part where you're listening and imagine how we can make each other feel in the world if we listen to one another. Mm. Very, very powerful, um, John, and, and I thank you so much for, for joining us today on World Footprints and sharing your personal journey uh, with us. And uh, for our listening audience, we do have a link uh, to your uh, book, and on your guest page and on the show page uh, at worldfootprints.com. John Francis is the author of The Ragged Edge of Silence, Finding Peace in a Noisy World. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Tanya. After the break, fragrance entrepreneur and humanitarian Gear Ness and his journey. So when people ask me where I was from, when I said Norway, they say, don't you have a young fragrance in Norway? And then I find out we never had our own fragrance. So I started to think about, wow, maybe I should do this myself. And that's how I come up with the idea of creative fragrance. But from having an idea to doing it is two different things. Next on World Footprints Radio. Hi, my name is Emeline. I'm from Korea. I love Footprints Radio. Join award-winning World Footprints Radio, a leader in socially conscious travel, for inspiring, entertaining, and educational shows. Meet well-known guests like Bobby Kennedy Jr., actress Stephanie Powers, and director Ken Burns, along with other celebrities, newsmakers, and industry professionals who celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage, and support public diplomacy initiatives. Travel with us to unique places around the world and join us on our efforts to raise awareness about environmental, conservation, and human rights issues and learn what you can do to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Also visit our interactive and informative website at worldfootprints.com. For the latest and last-minute travel deals, visit the worldfootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners. You can't find these deals anywhere else and we've seen sales for $9 per night for hotels and $49 airline tickets. So stop by worldfootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also make sure you visit the travel marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. Hi, my name is 
Asutuya Sara. I am from Samoa and I really love the World Footprints Radio and I love this family that talk to me like friends to me. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Kiranes is the founder of the Lila Perfume Company, a company whose fragrances can be seen nationwide on the shelves at many high-end stores. But Gear's story is more than about his perfume company. It's about a man with incredible determination who achieved success but who never lost sight of his commitment to make a difference in others' lives. During the course of our conversation with Gear, he talks about his good friend and fellow Norwegian nine-time New York Marathon champion Greta Weiss, with whom he joined forces to battle cancer. Sadly, Greta lost her battle to cancer the day after we sat down with Gear, and we dedicate this interview to her memory and to all of those who are in the fight against cancer, and we encourage everyone to contribute to winning this fight. And now our conversation with Gear Ness. Gear, welcome. Thank you so much. Your life story reads like a great novel. Tell us about your life growing up in Oslo, Norway, and the many roads that you travel, which finally brought you to the U.S., and I understand you made a, a stop there in Spain as well. That's true. <laughs> well, I actually I grew up right outside um, downtown Oslo, and uh, we actually lived in a one-bedroom apartment in a fourplex. We were three brothers, so we had a bedroom, and my mom and dad basically had their bedroom in our living room. So we didn't really have a lot of extra money, and I just remember so well winter time where we had a bathroom in the basement we would share with our neighbors downstairs. So when it was 20 below zero, I had to walk down two stairs to go to the bathroom during the night. And uh, uh, I remember one time I was so scared because there was something falling down there, and I thought <laughs> I was, you know, somebody was going to come and kill me. And I remember running up, you know, with my pants down. <laughs> <laughs> and this whole experience, you know, and I'm looking back and I'm saying, oh, my God, but you know what? I learned so much from it. And, and growing up in a home that you have two loving parents meant so much because we didn't have any money. So, and I wasn't used to get anything, which actually forced me to start to think about, you know, taking care of myself in a very early age. So my mom was always there, and um, I got a job. Uh, when I was almost 12, um, going with newspaper in the morning. So I was up at uh, 3.30 in the morning, and I went down, got the newspaper, and delivered them, got back to bed for an hour. My mom, you know, woke me up, got breakfast for me, and started school. And uh, doing all those different jobs, by the time I was 18, I bought my first condo. And Wow. And I was just, uh, and my condo was bigger than my apartment that I grew up in with my, with my, my two brothers and my mom and dad. And it was really, um, what I learned from this whole thing was, you know, if you want something, you have to work hard for it, you have to want it, and be kind to people, and treat people with respect, and, and it comes back to you. Hmm. Now, when you arrived in the U.S., you had initially sought a career as an actor and model, how did you make that leap from those aspirations in the entertainment world to building your own fragrance company? Well, what happened was I was actually um, living in Spain. I worked as a tour guide, and I also did um, entertainment, like um, 
different shows for all the tourists, you know, singing, dancing, and the whole thing. And uh, one night I was doing the show, and this uh, director from Sweden came backstage and said, oh, you're so funny, you're this and that, you should do something more with the craft, you should think about going to London or New York, L.A. And, you know, I was very happy in Spain, but then I thought about more and more, and one day I said to myself, I'm just going to write to some of the schools and see if I get any response. And I got this letter from uh, Los Angeles from the Stella Adler um, acting school um, saying that I had to go there for an audition and um, so I just told my parents that I was accepted, you know. <laughs> and I just went over to LA, I didn't know a single person in the country and I go to audition, I got accepted and I started school and then after like eight, nine months, I started to get broke because all the money that I saved up, you know, it goes fast when you rent an apartment, you have to buy a little car and the whole thing. So uh, friends of mine in class had a job as a fragrance model and I had no clue what a fragrance model was <laughs> and they said, well, what you do, you go into the apartment store and you, have, you work for this fragrance company and you spray perfume on anyone that walks <laughs> through those doors. <laughs> so I literally thought that's what they meant. So I got this job with this fragrance company and people started, you know, to come by and I run after people and spray everybody because I was told that and I got fired in three minutes. <laughs> the manager came up to me and said, this is not for you, mister. You know, you have to find something else. And I got fired on that. Oh. And, um, <laughs> but then I started to learn more about this business and um, then I got a job in this other department store and I started to know more. I started to talk to people and I always, uh, since I was very young, interested in fragrance and especially in, in flowers, you know, when I walked to my mom uh, every spring and summer, we walked up in the mountains and she will show me flowers and tell me about them and I could separate them and I remember them next time we come. So I always was very, very interested in, in, uh, in scent, but not particularly I knew much about perfume, but it's kind of the same thing. So when people ask me where I was from, when I said Norway, they say, don't you have a young fragrance in Norway? And then I found out we never had our own fragrance. So I started to think about, wow, maybe I should do this myself. And that's how I come up with the idea of creative fragrance. But from having an idea to doing it is two different things. So what I did, I met this perfumer um, when I worked for some of the perfume line in weekends. And I asked him what I need to do. And he told me to find ingredients that I liked. And the first thing, you know, that came to my mind were, of course, Norwegian wildflowers, the flowers that my mom showed when I was little. Mm -hmm. So... Those were the things that I really would like to have, you know, in the scent. So next time I went to Norway for a vacation, I um, sampled all the flowers and herbs, and I went with him, and we started to make oil out of them and um, worked together. We worked together for probably four years to come up with it. And one thing that was very important for me is to come up with something that had, like, more natural oil, so if people were allergic or sensitive, they could still be able to wear the, you know, the fragrance. And after we did all that, and I sampled it out, I went to the street and asked people what they thought about the scent without telling them that I was behind it. In that way, you get the honest truth, what people, you know, really think. And um, the last response we got was such an amazing, like almost 100% we said, oh my God, I love this. What's the name? What, where can I get it? So I said to myself, I wanted a name that meant something. So what I did, I copied my mom's signature without her knowing it. And I still screened her name on the bottle, and I gave it to her um, for Mother's Day as a surprise. Oh, and I think that's just such a, a wonderful story and a, and a wonderful tribute to your mom. And I know uh, you, you both are quite close, and when you travel, you, you know, you, you do live in an airplane, basically, because you travel yeah. so much. <laughs> but but your, your mom also travels with you around the country on uh, doing, you know, tours. Yeah, my mom has been with me um, several times. We did show with the uh, Nordstrom's department stores, 
you know, in the U.S., we had done um, TV appearances, you know, in Europe, and she's with me, poor, <laughs> poor my mom, I'd rag her with me <laughs> But, you know, it's been great because I think, you know, doing all this, we had also inspired other people that has a dream that can do it. And, you know, and also what I learned from my mom when I, was, I grew up, and I wrote it actually a little book about, a little pocket book that I sell at Disney. But the book, it's about how my mom learned me at a very early age to respect other people, older people, all kind of people, you know, and just treat people with kindness. And that means a lot, too. It's not just money, you know, mm-hmm. giving people, uh, you know, money, money. It's also how to treat other people, you know, and that means a lot for so many people. Sure, and the book you're referring to is entitled Letters from a Son to His Mother, and that's available at uh, Disney, you said? Yeah, I'm selling it right now exclusively at um, Disney in Orlando and also online, you know, at Lila.com. Okay. And, um, yeah, a lot of people have read it. It's just a small pocketbook, but it's a lot of stories. Like, one of the stories that I think I just want to tell you if you have time, it's the job I got in Spain uh, because when... When I was 20 or 19, you know, I always wanted to go to Spain. I saw pictures of Spain, and there was, like, palm trees, the sun, and, you know. And since I started working when I was very young and, you know, and working hard and, and have all these dreams, I said to myself, I want this a job in Spain. But, and one day I look, um, read in the newspaper, and they're looking for a tour guide in Spain right away. But you have to speak fluent Spanish, and mm-hmm. you have to know the island of Mallorca. Those were the two things they said. And I, have, I couldn't speak a word of Spanish. I've never been to Spain. But I, I showed up in this interview in downtown Oslo with hundreds of people in line, you know, to interview for this job. And I walk into the, to this meeting room, and this woman sitting there, and she interviewed me, and she asked me all these questions about, you know, so you've been there? I said, oh, yeah, I basically grew up in Spain. I can speak fluently and all that. And then... She said, okay, uh, your next interview will be with the Spanish teacher. So I go into the def- other room. And uh, thankfully, um, the te- uh, Spanish teacher didn't show up. There was something happening in the traffic, whatever. So the interviewer said to me, okay, I'm going to mark it down, you know, um, from a scale from one to five, five, that you speak it fluently in, in this um, interview um, you know, report. I said, okay. You know, and I didn't th- think about it more. I said, well, I probably didn't get the job. And two days later, I got a phone call that I actually got the job and I had to leave to Spain the next day. So I ended up in Spain in the night, it was like midnight, it was so dark, and two of the tour guides picked me up at the airport, they take me to a motel, and tell, told me that the next morning I had to be in an information booth at 5 a.m. to answer questions for all the people, you know, uh, what they have. And the, all those people that, I'm, um, that I was gonna talk to were from Sweden, Norway, Denmark, or Germany. So they weren't, um, you know, Spanish uh, tourists. It was mm-hmm. all people from Scandinavia. So I, in the morning at 8 o'clock, this family came um, over to me and said, from Sweden, and the guys, their dad said to me, I'm so excited. You know, we're going to be here now for two weeks. It's our first day, and we want to go to a place that is not a lot of tourists. Where should we go? And uh, I was sitting staying there, you know, looking at the map, and I know... From map, you see a lot of greenery. That means that there's a lot of trees and, and beautiful. <laughs> so I'm looking at this map while I'm talking to them, and I look, and next to the map, it says something about this famous restaurant that is on this side. So I told them, you have to drive very carefully. The, the road, they're very, you know, 
very narrow. And when you come to this restaurant, it's my favorite. They have a great paella, you know, and I read about this when I talk to him. The woman's name, you know, Gloria and her specialty. And when I said, go there and have lunch. You will love it. It's my specialty. And I wrote down for him and whatever and all that. And then he wanted to have a car, rent a car. And this is like, you know, this is like 17 years ago. And at that time, a lot of people in Spain didn't really speak a lot of English. So I had to do this in Spanish. I had to call up this uh, rent-a-car company and try to get this car coming to pick these people up. So I dialed this phone number, and the guy said something, uh, you know, in Spanish, and I could see what, that car was coche, and, you know, now uh, what a couple of things that I saw what, how to, you know, pronounce it. So I talked to this company, and they said, well, whatever, and I say back, okay, hotel, ahora, and then they hang up, but I continue to pretend that I was speaking Spanish still, you know, for the, and said, oh, sí, claro, no problem, boom, you know, and the guy said to me, oh, my God, I can't believe you can speak uh, this language. I said, well, you know, in this job, you had to manage everything, you know, <laughs> and the car came after, like, 20 minutes, thank God, and they left, and then... And then a few months later, and after that, I started to, you know, learn pretty quickly how to manage all this. Two months later, I got a, a call from my boss in Palma, which is the capital you know, on the Isle of Mallorca, yeah. that I had to come in right away for um, a meeting. So I thought I was going to get fired. So, you know, I, I got in there, and I walked in, and the secretary gave me this letter, and she said, please read this, you know, and then he will be ready for you. So I started to read this letter, and it says, uh, to so-and-so, we went to Spain for the first time, and uh, we met this Norwegian um, guide, Gear, and we had never met anybody with so much knowledge, you know, of um, this <laughs> island. And we had the best trip the first day, you know. It was just wonderful. We got the best, you know, um, lunch. We got this place, and we got this car, you know, and on and on. So my boss, you know, when I walked over to his boss, he gave me some keys and said, Gear, tomorrow um, um, you're promoted. You're going to take over basically half of the island. You're going to have, you know, your condo. You get a car. I have 30 people under me. I'm going to have a new meeting with all my staff tomorrow. Oh, my god! So he promoted me. And, and it was just because I believed in myself and I was crazy enough to do this, you know, and <laughs> you can do it. But so that, that's one of the stories in that book is about how I dealt with things when I grew up and how to, you know, doing things differently yeah yeah, yeah. and you know and, and that's one of the things i love about your story just your sheer determination your strong belief and we see this over and over again you know in reading your story i know that you spent nearly every dime you had and sold nearly all of your possessions to launch uh lila and you know right. it was your acting skills that you put into place and creativity that allowed allowed you to create a huge buzz um, right. at your first launch in, in Nordstrom's, and that's such a funny story. I'm going to ask you to share yeah, that I, with us. I, <laughs> yeah, I can tell you quickly that story, too, because I think that will motivate people to do, you know, I was, um, I finally got in 100 bottles, um, I think it was, at Nordstrom, in one store in Beverly Hills, and they have it on consignment, so they said, okay, you have, like, four months to sell this, and if you don't sell them, you have to take them all back. So I said, okay, no problem, and this was uh, the day before Mother's Day. I'm going to have my fragrance in there. Garage sale, and I bought a suit for $5. And at the garage sale, there was a red carpet laying there. So I got that, in, you know, I got that for free. And then I called up a friend of mine in Clapper, and I asked him if he can come and take picture of me and pretend that I was a big star. And he said, sure, you know, I can do that. But I, I'm not filming the camera, but nobody knows that. I said, just come and flash and make it happen. <laughs> and, and then when the store opened, you know, I had my um, 
my suit on, all my bottles was behind me. I had my headshot, my pictures of myself from acting class. So I would use that one, you know, and stashed it up and the red carpet and the whole thing. And um, when the store opens, people starting to come over to me because, you know, in L.A., everybody want to see a star or you think you're a star or whatever, you know, it's all uh, about that. Mm-hmm. So people, I started to get this huge line of people and people started to buy my fragrance. I was signing all the bottles, you know, and make it really big. And I had a couple of people in my class that came down and I told them this to make a big bus that I was there and said, oh my God, here he is. I can't believe he's here in the store. And you know, like when customer was there and everybody started to buy more and more. And I remember this one woman come up to me with so much diamonds on her hands. You can even lift her you know, hands up to me. <laughs> she looked at me and she looked at my suit and she goes, darling, I love that suit. That must be from Europe. And I bought it like five blocks away in a garage sale, you know, and I was just smiling. And <laughs> so in an hour, I've sold out all the bottles, and I got like 30 people on a waiting list. And um, I remember walking out of Nordstrom's, and this, this um, homeless person was out there with um, his little hat with money in it. And he asked me, excuse me, sir, do you have some change? And I looked at him and I said, you have more money than I will have in a long time. <laughs> I really have something to give you. So this, this homeless person had more money than me, but, you know, it's all an illusion. You see this guy coming out with a suit, you know, and uh, it looks like you have all this thing. And then I walked in my car, which I parked five blocks away, um, because there was like a little, you know, that Renault car, the Le Car, yes. this little box car. Yes. I bought that for $500 and I parked it so far away so nobody could see me and I took that old suit off and I started to feel something because I couldn't dry clean. I didn't have money to dry clean my suit and I bought it in a garage sale so you can imagine how nice that one to wear. And at that time I was a seat filler for Star Jones. Uh, she used to have a talk show way before The View and all that. She had a little in talk show. Mm-hmm. So I was a seat filler. They paid me like 25 or $30 a day to sit there and, and uh, applaud, you know, uh, in the audience. So that was my other job. After that, I was like a star at Nordstrom. I jump in my car, put on my, you know, and shirt and another pair of jeans and r- drive over to her studio to be a seat filler for, you know, for her. So... I did all kind of jobs in between, you know, until I built up my business. So it's kind of funny to see, you know, you just have to go for it and not be afraid of doing things and think outside the box. Mm-hmm. And, Gear, in building that business and thinking outside the box, you continue to grow this business despite some of the challenges you faced operationally and manufacturing-wise. And uh, you've also started to extend the line into men's items and Handbags. Talk to us about the growth of business. When I started handbags, it was just a fluke. I needed um, a gift set. And I was thinking about, you know, it was great to have like a handbag instead of just having a box with my perfume in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, what about, you know, create something that people can use in the summer and winter? So I, I started to do some drawing and I um, designed a, um, a handbag that was reversible. So you use looks like two different bags with the same bag. So you can reverse it, you know, so you have two bags in one. And that was such a huge success when I started with Nordstrom. So now we're doing two different ones um, a year. And I also work, you know, for some of the um, fashion weeks in Europe. So I design handbags there and I'm using them and they're becoming a success. But I only make them once and then sell them out and then it's the next season. So, um, so though I was just at Nordstrom this weekend in uh, Tampa, Florida, and we sold out in like 15 minutes. Like 100 bags, they were gone. Because people really see that something different that you can't really get anywhere. So, and then I expanded it to, you know, lotion. I do a serum, deodorants, um, 
bath and shower gel. I have a whole line, the men's fragrance. I named after myself because I couldn't come up with a better name than gear. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it says it all. And you know, you touched on something that uh, that I know is very important to you, and, it, and it's something that we love about you. And it's your commitment to uh, to give back. I mean, you remember, you know, what you went through, how people helped you, and you've remained. Uh, remained committed to to helping others and in fact uh, you and I on a board for I am for kids foundation uh, and so you're very involved with various uh, charities talk about the the charities that are really dear to your heart in in the work that you've been doing for other causes well um, I worked um, well a couple of years ago I had contact with Susan DeCommon, um you know, which is uh, huge for, especially for breast cancer. And I had, I created a, a pink bottle with pink packaging. So 10% of all the sales was going to her. And while I was doing that, I had so many people around me, and we all do know, know somebody that had cancer. And um, I wanted to be more involved, you know, see what I, little I could do. And um, a very dear friend of mine, her name is Greta Whites. She uh, is a world champion in um, in um, marathon, and she had like nine. Um, she won, I think, New York marathon nine times. And we had, um, and she got cancer a few years ago. We were sitting in Norway having lunch, you know, with, um, and I said, you know, I want to do something, um, you know, with your organization, and um, and that her organization called Active Against Cancer. Um, and it's um, trying to get money for machines you can do to detect, you know, if you, um, like breeding machines and all those things. And uh, so I was joking and said, you know, I can run the New York Marathon, you know. And she goes, okay, here we are, here, 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 the Marathon. <laughs> so I happened, you know, so I trained for it, and I did. And we raised, um, I think, um, a couple hundred thousand um, dollars for, you know, running. And uh, when I was doing that, I met other people that had, um, that um, was abused when they were little, I mean, all those things. So I got more involved. With, with those groups and it's just wonderful to see that you can be able to help people with something you created yourself you know and make the fragrance actually be part of um, or your fragrance line part of helping people and um, a lot of people will say okay you don't need a fragrance you know um, to survive and it's not it's uh, you know some people will probably think that you don't need a fragrance it's a more important thing in life but I can tell you that I met so many people that I have that, that had experienced my fragrance and know the story behind it that actually um, had helped people with their you know their um, way of being because I met this one little girl before Christmas in uh, Disney she was staying there watching me doing my promotion, signing models for all these people. And I knew there was something wrong with her, so I took her over to me. I said, come over here. And I gave her a little hand massage with my cream, and I um, gave her a little sample of my perfume. And then her mom came over to me um, like an hour later, and she said, thank you for taking care of my, my daughter. And I said, of course. And she goes, well, my daughter is actually 12 years old, but she has a brain like a six years old, and she had like seven brain uh, surgeries. So mm -hmm. she, her brain is not really developed. And, uh, but she, um, so I got her information, her um, address, right before Christmas. So I sent the little girl a picture of me and some perfume for Christmas. And a few days after Christmas, her mom called me and told me that this little girl is sleeping with my pictures every night Aww. and smiling and seeing this mm -hmm. picture and I remember the perfume. And, you know, those are the th times and things that makes, you know, the worth for me and doing this because... You can make a difference for people, you know, regardless of, and just take a little time 
And it doesn't have to be money. It can be anything. And that's yeah. what I learned, you know, from growing up with my mom and how she taught me all these things that I'm using myself today. That, you know, it's all about being there and listen to people and take a little time, you know, away from yourself, you know, for other people. Now, Gear, your life has been so inspirational to others, and I understand that uh, your life story is being considered for a screenplay. Uh, yeah, that's right. I have um, talked to actually uh, several um, studios about that, and uh, they thought it was so fascinating. And also, a lot of things we didn't talk about, all the craziness that happens in between, and things that have happened, you know, a little fun, a lot of fun um, stories that they uh, really would like to go ahead more. We've actually working on some of them for a while, so um, hopefully soon that will um, happen, that um, people can really be able to um, go to the movie and see the story <laughs> with somebody, you know, um, to inspire people and also laugh and have fun, and hopefully they can learn something from watching it. Entrepreneur, humanitarian, Gare Ness, thank you for being with us today on World Footprints Radio. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Up next, travel writer Cynthia Dial takes us on a journey to Burma. As a guest in the country, you are as well. I really didn't even notice it. Now, it's quite interesting because anything that's printed, like the airline magazine, has kind of this manifesto in it. Next on World Footprints Radio. Hi, my name's Catherine from France, and I love listening to World Footprints Radio. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. A few years ago, we decided to leave our respective legal practices to live a more purposeful travel life and help others leave positive footprints. World Footprints was born and was quickly recognized for its award-winning journalism. We've covered events from the Olympics to a Titanic expedition, and we've discussed conservation, environmental, and public diplomacy initiatives. Join us for award-winning radio and visit our website, worldfootprints.com, for daily travel deals and comprehensive travel information. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. Hi, this is James K. from Los Angeles, California. And I just want to say I've traveled all over the world, but whenever I come back home, I always tune in to World Footprints Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Cynthia Dial is a freelance travel writer and author of Get Your Travel Writing Published, and she's probably a familiar name to World Footprints audiences. Cynthia has joined our show many times to share her travel adventures, and her appearance on World Footprints Today means that she's probably just returned from another part of the world. Welcome back, Cynthia. Oh, hi, Tanya. Thank you. Now, where did you go this time? I went to Burma. Um, which many may know as Myanmar, 
it's in Southeast Asia, and it's so interesting because it's bordered by, I mean, its borders alone sound so terribly exotic. You know, it's like China, India, Bangladesh, Laos. It's, it's just an incredible part of the world. Mm-hmm. And, and what was the purpose of this trip? Well, actually, I went with a photo tour. Um, I'd never been on one before, and I was very intrigued by Myanmar just simply because of the um, Ansan Suu Kyi. Her release was in November. Mm-hmm. You know, she had been elected, uh, legally elected years ago, but they didn't recognize it, and it's under military dictatorship. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it would be terribly interesting. I know it's very difficult. In fact, on a visa, um, had I put, I'm a journalist on a visa, I would not have been allowed into the country. Oh, is um, that right? Um, Lonely Planet suggests, and I thought this was very, um, you know, the way you kind of follow it. Uh, put, if you are a journalist, you might want to put your dream job <laughs> in a, if you want to visit the country. Because I know one of my editors was very, is very intrigued, and it will be in his magazine, because he did put, he was a journalist, and he never got there. Mm. Now, you mentioned, you know, the the countries sometimes referred to as um, Myanmar or, or Burma. And I'm just wondering how internally um, do citizens, the majority of citizens that you met, how did they recognize the country? Both ways, really. They really do. They call the people Burmese. And they, I've heard the country referred to by them as Myanmar and as, as Burma. So it's not like it's, um, although the government itself definitely wants you to refer to it as Myanmar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Military and, government. And, and how have, uh, have, has a population been adjusting to this new military rule? The people, it's almost like without a beat, they just resumed positions and they just went on their merry way they seem to be totally unpulsed by the fact that it's military rule i i was kind of shocked and as a, a tourist as a guest in the country you are as well i really didn't even notice it now it's quite interesting because anything that's printed like the airline magazine has kind of this manifesto in it that talks about um, the the Burmese people and what the um, the four pillars that they follow and what the people should do for the country and how they should live their lives and this is in everything this is on newspapers hmm. anything that's printed so that's certainly there and it reminds you I I think I even saw it on a billboard I did in Rangoon well actually now it's called Yangon it was Rangoon um, but the people themselves. They don't really, now they don't talk politics. It's not like we would do over coffee. Mm -hmm. They do not do that. It's actually against the law to do that. Publicly. Yeah. And on Sun Suchi, you cannot have a cab driver drive by her house because the cab driver, if you stopped and took pictures, could be arrested. Oh. Yeah. So you, but the people themselves, you would think that they would just be so closed, and they're not at all. They're so open and friendly and welcoming. They come up to you and speak and wave, and it was incredible. Well, I mean, it sounds like in some ways that perhaps Western media has sensationalized 
the the events in that country. Um, but having just returned from there, would you say that there's kind of a disparity between what we see in our news here versus what you actually personally witnessed? Absolutely. I really do. I mean, I was a bit concerned about going there, to be honest. I just thought, especially with the visa process, it was very much like going to Russia when I had to to let my visa for Russia. Mm-hmm. And I thought, do I really want to do this? Is it even safe? And I, of course, thought that because of what I've heard, you know, the westernized nations. And, and many of my editors, one editor said, since they are under sanctions, I don't think we want a story on that right now. Hmm. So another, and others have been very, very interested. Um, but it, it's it's the most wonderful country and I'm thinking that if you're holding back because of fears or just the unknown I would say absolutely do not do that Mm -hmm. but I would also say to go with a photo tour or a a very small very well organized tour. Sure now you had an opportunity to witness some some events and really capture images that most people don't see like the spirit festival and a robe ceremony talk a little bit about those unique opportunities. Well it's terribly unique to this part of the world. The Spirit Festival, I think, was probably the most unique. (laughs) And I have air quotes around unique. So interesting. And this is based on two men. There was a king and and two men who um, were his favorites. I think they were twins, or they were brothers. And they were supposed, everyone in the village was supposed to bring a brick for this um, pagoda he was building. And they ran into some kind of trouble and didn't, so he had them executed. Well, now, now the pagoda was built, and it still stands, and there are two missing bricks in it for these brothers. But they, the Burmese, will use any reason for a festival. So there's a festival around this now, <laughs> and it is a spirits festival. And spirits, it's, it's very interesting. The people, the Burmese, are very, very Buddhist, and yet there's a side of them that does believe in, they're very superstitious as well. And spirits are supposed to supposed to be able to kind of, they're mediums, they act as mediums to, um, to those, to an upper being who can, you know, um, influence whether your child does the, get the highest grades in school or whether your business flourishes or whether your marriage really is a very happy one. And they're very superstitious and the patrons will pay these spirits who are Men dressed as women, and I mean, these guys look fantastic, I tell you. I've got a picture I'll send you, Tanya. It's one of these spirits that has a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, and he's just dressed to the hilt. (laughs) Uh, I mean, and they they dance themselves into this frenzy, to this loud, blaring, what they call music, but it was quite interesting. And then the patrons give them money, and they suppose... Supposedly, they act as mediums for whatever the hmm. patrons really want out of their lives. And we were the only non-villagers at this ceremony and really treated quite like royalty. Once we got in the country, everywhere we went, we really did kind of get front row seats to, to everything. Hmm. So we were there for this festival where they're doing their dance and the patrons are coming up and pasting money on them and um, hoping for good fortune. And there, it, was, it was quite interesting. And what about the the robe ceremony that you witnessed? Now, this was very, very special. A novitiation is when the young Burmese boys 
uh, become novice monks. And that doesn't mean, I really thought it meant they entered the monastery for life. But it's not that. It's almost like summer school, summer camp, where they get a taste of the novice, of, of the, um, the monk's life. And, but it's, it's, very, um, it's a very, very special ceremony. They have a procession. They dress the, these boys like princes. And because Buddha's son was a prince, they parade them through town or whatever form of transportation they have. Like a wealthier family had an oxen cart that was decorated, and the oxen are decorated. You know, they have their little things on their horns and, and everything. Mm-hmm. Others are riding horses, and to shade them, they have gilded umbrellas over them, and the parents are walking beside them. One little boy, it was so cute, he was quite young. He was drinking his little cup, you know, <laughs> out of a little, a little, um, you know, childproof cup with a lid on it and everything. Oh, bless. On the top of his little <laughs> horse while his parents are, you know, have the gilded umbrella over him. And they parade to the pagoda. And then, um, and, and then the boys get dressed in their regular clothes, and, and we have pictures of them wrestling with each other, you know, like little boys, like boys are going to do. Mm-hmm. Then they go through the head shaving ceremony, which is very, um, very solemn. The parents are on either side of him, kneeling down, and they're holding the cloth, and then the monk shaves his head, and the, the hair drops into the cloth. And we witnessed that. We have pictures of that. And we were invited, actually, to the robe ceremony, which is inside the monastery. We were, it was only us and the family. And um, <clears throat> they do the prayers. And the boys are supposed to, to, it says, beg permission to become novices. And then they, um, you know, they show them the proper way to do the robes. Mm-hmm. And they, they tie the robes around them. And the significance of the robe is because um, Buddha, when he, he was very wealthy, and when he renounced the kind of life he had, which was just one full of wealth and um, no sacrifice at all, he felt the only way to really to assume a life, as most people did, was to don his, his really um, expensive attire and wear a robe, mm-hmm. which is only the purpose of it is just to shelter you from the climate and the weather. Sure. Um, now, I, I'm, I'm wondering, Cynthia, just a few minutes we have left, was there, I mean, you, you seem to have experienced a lot of wonderful things. Was there one moment during this trip that was transformative for you? Well, I'll have to say that... Um, I think everyone is experiencing right now where you're just so unsure financially and just, you know, and you're, and honestly, the people over there are so poor and they're so happy. And it made me realize as they're running to the windows to wave to us and, yeah, Bangla which means hello, and, and they get so tickled when they see their pictures and they have their arms around each other and they're given the peace sign and everything. Oh. It just made me, it was so cute. It just made me realize that, honestly, it is a choice. You choose, you don't choose your circumstances, certainly, but you choose how you handle it, and you choose if you're going to be happy about it, not about your circumstances, if you're going to make your life a happy one or if you're not. And it's obvious they have really chosen to do that. Hmm. So I just thought it was, now I feel like I was real privileged because I did kind of get an insider's track on this, 
and I think a lot of it was because our guide and and, and the gentleman who operated this tour company, this um, very small photo tours, they they really are committed to to getting you in to see the real Burma mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. opposed to to perhaps the one that we hear about on the news or one that would be have many many layers before you would get to the real people. Sure, and maybe that's why I saw this, but. Um, I felt real privileged for that reason. Now, now, for the listeners who are thinking about traveling to Burma, is there, um, what should they know before they go? Is there a piece of advice that you can give them to assist them in their their planning uh, process? Well, absolutely, I would tell them not to try to do it on their own. I really wouldn't, and I'm a firm believer in traveling on my own and being very independent. I just do that. That's the best way to do it. Hook up with a very small a tour operation you really trust. Do, do your research. I, um, I found one that I felt comfortable with because I wanted it to be Western run, and I did know I wanted a photo tour, but I knew that I wanted um, luxury which didn't mean that you're going to be staying in, you know, Mandarin Orientals or anything, but luxury in Burma is something I think you perhaps want. Is, is there one thing that visitors uh, to to Burma or Myanmar should, should do while they're there? Is there, like, one thing that they have to see from your perspective? Um, absolutely, Bagan. And Bagan is known for its, at one time, 4,000 today, about 2,000 pagodas. And when you do that, you need to go to the top of one at day, before daybreak so that you're watching the sunrise there and go to the top of one at dusk and watch the sunset. It is the most magnificent experience to the extent that a, a local who kind of is a caretaker, she just happened on to us, helped us down with flashlights. You know, and although we all carried our own flashlights, but it was the, such a wonderful experience to be up there and see these hundreds and hundreds of pagodas. And you just see, it's almost like layers because, you know, when you're looking into the distance and, and one, it's very, very hazy in the back, and as you get close, each layer gets a little bit more clear. That's what you're going to see, layers and layers of pagodas. Mm. And then uh, the hot, and we did a hot air balloon um, over it in the morning at daybreak, too. So we saw it from so many perspectives. And, and that's, I think, a key, too, is to try to see Burma from all different perspectives, from the river, the Irrawaddy, from, you know, on top of pagodas, from from all different kinds of perspectives. Mm-hmm. That's what I would really recommend. Mm. Well, I'm glad that uh, that you made it back and uh, safely and could uh, share uh, this trip with, uh, with our audiences. And just for those aspiring travel writers out there, there is a link to Cynthia's book, Get Your Travel Writing Published, on her guest profile page, as well as today's show page at worldfootprints.com. Uh, Cynthia, it's always a pleasure, my dear, and thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks, Tanya. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for sharing this time with us today. We always look forward to seeing you here and to connecting with you on our multiple platforms and social networks. You can find links to everything and sign up for our newsletter and travel deals at worldfootprints.com. 
www.bogotacoffeeshop.com. And as an aside, I'll be traveling to Bogota, Colombia, and I would love for you to follow me in my adventures in Colombia in real time on our Facebook and Twitter platforms. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you next week. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi guys, my name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada, Banff National Park, natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio, because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, there are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.